Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. I mean, there may be, but it seems like it's a whole lot more complicated than that. And even if there was a single gene, we know that it would be so changeable. Okay? We have to know the mechanism first, of course, to understand that gene. Okay. Questions about that stuff before we move on to natural selection? Much of this you guys have all seen before, so I'll go through some of it kind of quickly, but then it'll expand quite a bit. Um, that's Charles Darwin on the left. And on the right, that's quite an old picture of Jonathan David Darwin Broadbeck. <laughs> what you watch, King of the Hell? Yeah. You watch the King of the Hell. These guys, they're probably there maybe a year and a half. Maybe a year and a half. It would have to be 2002, because I had just read on the floor. Anyway, that's a little place in the Okay. Um. The theory of natural selection is so simple that anyone can misunderstand it. Many of you that are taking brain behavior have seen these slides with different backgrounds just the other day. Um, Darwin and the rest of people that were naturalists at the time saw three problems that were needed a solution. Um, I use the word naturalist because no one was a biologist until Darwin. We don't have, it's like saying you're a chemist before there was a periodic table. You're not really. Right? You're sort of an alchemist. My daughter's taking chemistry and she said they have to do a presentation, which I interesting. Proof of chemistry. I said, do it on alchemy just for fun. You up there and say, Does anyone here in the philosopher's stone? I'm going to turn this lead into gold. And you see what happens. I think she's more concerned with her grades than I am, which is odd. Um go on, do it to get laughs. It's all about getting laughs. It's only first year. That doesn't affect your grad school chances. Um, so, anybody else saw these problems too? This was something that if you look back in the literature of the time, when naturalists would get together, they would, they would discuss these problems and try to figure out solutions. And solutions were arrived at, but none of them explained all these problems. Um, the first problem is this change in the flora and fauna of the Earth. That's what we think of in the word evolution. That's the idea that we look at the fossil record and we can see animals that aren't around anymore. Or we can see old versions of animals. You know, if you find an old horse from a whole long time ago that had hoes instead of hoes. You don't think this. You find trilobites. It's, it's hard not to find trilobites if you're out looking at a box. I mean, you've got to know what you're looking for. Um, and there aren't any trilobites anymore. Which is good because they look kind of creepy. Interesting the stuff before the dinosaurs. Take a look at Walking with Monsters BBC series, available on Netflix. Um, I think I'm doing Netflix ads, but I'm really not. I just love Netflix. Uh, but Walking with Monsters, it's about the evolution of animals before the dinosaurs. And some of them you wouldn't want to run into. Just saying. You could outsmart them all. <laughs> I think you do a lot of this. Hey, look over there! And just run away. But uh, this isn't controversial. Darwin's time, people saw this, and it's not controversial now, except among the limited French, many of whom are running for the nomination of the Republican Party for the President of the United States. I weep for the USA. I weep for you. <laughs> no, I'm serious. It's deserved. Nowhere else in the world. Nowhere. Okay, ran. <laughs> Didn't the Canadian Minister of Science and Technology yeah. like two years ago announce that? Wasn't sure. Just <laughs> the theory. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think he's the Minister of Science anymore, though. <laughs> no, we had Stockwell Day when he was really the Prime Minister, like as the head of the Alliance back after it was the Reform Party. He was asked about creationism, and he, he didn't say the answer that he should have said, which is. I keep science and religion separate, which would be the smart political answer. He at least was honest, which is, I guess we'll give him some credit there. And, you know, 
He seems to believe that dinosaurs and cavemen cavorted. I think most of the schooling he had was through the Flintstones. Uh, so, but no, I mean we can say all we want about about Canada uh, and the current government, and that's a whole other course. Uh, perhaps a discussion on Facebook, um, but, where I'm not actually teaching. But I don't think you're going to see. There isn't a leader of a major political party in Canada going, well, you know, uh, it's just a theory. <laughs> it just isn't one. Um, people did see there's a taxonomic relationship among living things. And this was even the because people, again, what were naturalists doing? They were collecting and classifying. That's all they could do, basically. So you those are those are grasses, those are insects, etc. You know, and, and this beetle and this beetle are different species, but um, they're more closely related than to each other than they are to these two kinds of grasses. You know, that kind of thing. So they saw that. There's different birds, different trees, whatever. And you see, we take this now for granted, but if you don't have evolution behind you, you look at that and go, is that ever weird? Why make just, why not make one kind of fly? You know, that can do it all. Maybe strange, you know, what I mean? it's, so you got to keep that in your, in your head. But it's often hard. It's like when you find out that Aristotle thought that the that the, the, the heart was the seat of behavior, not the brain, and you think, what an idiot, and you realize that he was doing it from first principles, and you should be impressed. Same thing here, it's like, this seems so obvious today, because we have evolution, the light of evolution, but they didn't have that then. They hadn't discovered it. Um, finally, was adaptation, different kinds of teeth, different animals. Uh, you know, so you look at, and you look at the diet animals have, <coughs> and you look at the teeth they have, and it's funny, the teeth are suited for the kind of food they eat. Right? So if you take a look at a, a, a lot of your carnivores, your big cats, they've got tearing teeth, right? Because they rip stuff apart. You look at like a cow or a horse, they've got teeth that are for grinding down, uh, you know, grass and things like that. Because that's the baby. You look at us, we've got a bit of, bit of everything because we are omnivores. We, we eat everything. Right? But even within species, right? My eye makes a very lousy heart, and my heart is a very bad eye. But they're both part of me. Right? So, again, this is something that we look at today and go, uh-huh. But when you don't have evolution to look at this, you go, oh, yeah, wow, that's wacky. Because uh, a lot of people in the 1840s were using the word wacky. <laughs> I don't know, it's wacky stuff, that Charles. Because <laughs> I believe everyone spoke like that. <laughs> In England. It all happened in England. So. It's a cool thing. <laughs> now the version of the law is a mechanistic account of how these things occur. And how they're intimately related. Because most people talk like BBC reporters. <laughs> and all the naturalists, when this came out, were like, I can't believe I didn't think of that. Yeah, because most of them talk like they were from the East End of London. Well, you're called Cockney naturalists. Some of these are just for me. Because um, <laughs> it's very simple. It's a very simple uh, procedure. It's not complicated at all. So how does it work? Uh, there's competition among living things. That's a given. The neat thing about this is there's, very, there's only a couple of steps where everyone goes, oh, when that happens, and you go, oh, of course. We all knew there was competition among living things. There's more stuff born or hatched or whatever than, than survives and reproduces. Sure. Um, reproduction occurs with variation. So you have more or less uh, offspring. But you also have, each offspring is a little bit different. There's variation. And everybody goes, yeah, I'm with you still. And this is where Darwin makes the step. He says the variation itself is heritable. And you've got to remember something. There is no genetics back. I mean, there is genetics, nobody just discovered it yet. No one knew what DNA was. But somehow Darwin knew it wasn't just sort of blending of the mom and the dad, that it was something other than that. Now, Darwin's whole theory of how the heritability worked was, is bizarre and wrong. Um, the nice thing is, though, when people figured out how genetics worked, it fit in perfectly with this. That's quite cool. He just sort of knew something. 
The really smart people are like that. This is why he's one of my heroes, is that he's just so freaking smart. And he looked at everything everybody else has been looking at for years. I'm like, they probably look something like this. <laughs> you should watch the movie Creation. That's not on Netflix, I don't think. But uh, it's a 2009 movie. Uh, I guess it was made on the, would that be? It's the 200th year of his birth, wasn't it? He was born in 1809. Uh, it's a really good movie. It's great, actually. So selection determines which individuals enter the adult reading population. Now, Darwin had seen this. Darwin lived in the country like all good English gentlemen. Um, he lived in the country, and he had watched a farmer uh, pair up. You know, if you want a cow that gives a lot of milk, you pair up a female that gives a lot of milk and a male from a female that gives a lot of milk. Darwin uh, also had he collected uh, pigeons, like racing pigeons. It was sort of a thing he did, like a hobby. And he knew that if he crossed two fast pigeons, he got a fast pigeon. There's a great scene in that movie creation where he's sitting there talking to the... So I thought, Mr. Darwin, I got your pigeons for you. And he's actually explaining how he's crossing pigeons uh, two fast ones to make a faster one. And you're sitting there going, hey, hey, what? Oh, come on, say it now. Stay, you figured it out. Darwin had actually figured evolution out about 20 years-ish before he published it. Um, he, ended, he ended up publishing Origin of Species, which he called an abstract. Was <laughs> he called it an abstract. Because it's mostly it's mostly example. It's mostly example. He lays out the theory in, a, in, a, in one chapter, and then the rest of it is examples. And then the most amazing final paragraph ever of the book. Um, he probably didn't publish it because he was scared of the repercussions, um, partially. And we also know that his wife was very religious, <coughs> and he loved her deeply, and he did not want to offend her and upset her. He upset her enough <laughs> by being pretty clearly... Darwin was probably an atheist, which wasn't a popular view in the 1850s. He stopped going to church. People didn't do that in the 1850s. He wasn't a big fan of the church. He was friends with the minister. But he was like, yeah, no. So he was already, he didn't want to be ostracized, etc. But then somebody wrote him, because Mark Darwin was famous. He was this famous beetle collector. He was really good at it. He would give talks. He knew who he was. He was already a famous naturalist. And I thought I wrote him a, a letter and said, uh, Dear Mr. Darwin, I've, I've got this. Uh, theory of how this all stuff all comes about. It works kind of like this. And he's like, oh, shit. <laughs> I better publish mine now. So we actually didn't publish it. He was a very interesting fellow. So things that are best suited to the environment reproduce. So instead of the farmer or Darwin's pigeon keeper doing the selecting, the environment does it. And then those well-suited characteristics are passed on to the young. Right? Make sense so far? Most of you have already. Except some of you saw these slides on Thursday. <laughs> okay, how does it work? Um, reproduction is the key. If you survive to be 128, but you have no children, you're as fit as I am. Fitness means reproductive success. It means nothing else but that. Um, because I have reproduced the evidence. is right there in the photograph. Picture it didn't happen. Yes, those are my children. About seven years ago. At one point, perhaps my daughter will take this class and then we'll have to clearly change the slide. Or just say, look, right there, you know, I'll do that. <laughs> Assuming the traits that have made me successful um, help them, then I'm going to be more effective than 128 year old class. So assuming they reproduce and that, that guy creeps me out on a lot of levels. I don't want my daughter reproducing until well into her 50s. Because I'll be dead by then. You know. Or my son. Somehow especially my daughter. It's one of those <laughs> bad things. Uh, 
Um, survival of the fittest, which is something that Chuck E. D. is, his friends call him. It's his street name. Um, He never said it, Survival of the Fittest. Huxley said it, Darwin's Bulldog. But he never said it. Um, it's the, the most offspring that survive and reproduce. It's not just the most offspring. Because there's a lot of ways you can do this, right? How could you be successful as an animal? Let's um, not worry about plants. They're boring and they're leafy. They're not even really good to eat. You know, I mean, talk about meat. Um, as my brother once said when he was staying with some people that were vegetarian uh, for two days, he said, do you have anything that had a mother and a face that I could eat? Um, <laughs> I don't think it's his line, but I do like it. Um, those that have the most offspring that recruit, uh, are successful and also reproduce. So, for example, you could have one offspring, but care for it a lot and make sure it, it enters the adult breeding population or two or three. And that's what humans do, pretty much. Right? We have very few offspring. But then you look at, like, spiders. You know, a few thousand. <coughs> you don't no parental care whatsoever. But that's another approach. Yeah, let's have a whole bunch of kids and have them just send them out there. Some are bound to survive in groups. No, it's just different strategies. They both work. They both work. Um, so the answer to the, our trilogy of problems is descent with modification from a common ancestor. Not random modification, but modification shaped by natural selection. Everyone should get a copy of the species. If you have an iPad, it's free in the iPad book, in the, the iBook store, for example. Never pay a lot for an issue of origins because they're um, it's in the public domain. You shouldn't pay more than a few bucks to the binding. But you can get the whole thing online. And read the last paragraph. So you can get a version of the last paragraph that has the original, uh, from the first edition, not the ones from later editions, where Darwin put the word creator in to make his wife happy. It actually, I'm not, nothing to do religion, but it just messes the flow of the paragraph. Do I have my own pen for something? I'm not looking. Oh, because I have my Bible. Wait a second. Oh, it's a little charger. It sucks. Because it's a really moving paragraph. Like, it's really. The guy could write. One of the fun reasons to read Origins is that you read a science book that just reads so well. It's just so well written. So questions so far? You know this stuff, I think, but just, if you do have any questions, please ask them. Okay. So it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Like, it's really straightforward. It's not a complicated uh, <coughs> process at all. Uh, Richard Dawkins said in The Selfish Gene, which is a great book, by the way, another great book, um, that if we ever meet aliens, what they're going to ask us is not, have you discovered the theory of relativity? They're not going to ask us about physics and chemistry, because they're going to want to know if we've figured out where we came from. And they're going to say, have you discovered evolution by natural selection yet? <laughs> and that's when Sarah Palin, who will be the president of the world at that point, will say, no, it's just a theory. <laughs> I can see your planet from my house. <laughs> so I can talk about American politics all I want. I just don't talk about Canadian politics. That's, my, that's sort of my, my way I approach it. You can guess my Canadian politics, though. <laughs> or at least with big arms. Um, okay. So that's how selection, that, that's how natural selection works. Now let's delve a little more deeply into it. We have different types of selection. Okay? The first one here is it's called uh, directional selection. This is what most of us think of when we think about how selection works. And in fact, most of the examples that you would come up with would be a directional selection. Right? We would, you know, 
an extreme value is selected for. So here's the original population, and here's the here's some trait. It's going to be bell-shaped because most things are. That's fine. It needn't be, but we're, we're thinking of that. So this is the proportion right, of individuals in a population that have each value of the characteristic, whatever that characteristic might be. So one of the extreme values is selected for. I got that bolded because it's, sort of a, it's a technical term. One of the extreme values is selected for. And typically, the other extreme value is actually selected against. That doesn't have to. Really, just one extreme value has to be selected for. It'll work a little more quickly if the other extreme is selected against. A nice example here is human brain size. So if we look at the evolution of humans, um, our brains keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger per species. I'm not talking about looking at humans within each species, that's uh, within, within our, within each species, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about comparing us to uh, Heidelbergensis or Australopithecus, which wasn't really a human, or whatever. You can take a look and see that our brain size is getting bigger and bigger over time. That's a long period of time to look at, We can also look at one of my favorite examples, a couple of my favorite examples that you can see. And I think I talked, did I talk about this thing in the salt and pepper moth? Or was that brain behavior? It all runs together. Who's here? I talked about it here. I think I talked about brain behavior. But that's a great example because basically the salt and pepper moth had a whole bunch. The extreme is just having a whole lot of the black flecks. In other words, so much that it's just black. Or the uh, black cat warbler that started to migrate to uh, Germany. Right? Out of nowhere, they showed up. This took 20. This is 20 years of evolution. That's pretty damn quick. That must mean it was very advantageous, right? So this is a pretty simple one to understand. So the whole environment, the whole population shifts over to the new value, right? Does that make sense? Because I think that's the one we typically think of, right? Now there's stabilizing or normalizing selection. This is when the extremes are selected against and the middle is selected for. There's a lot of examples here. Typically, these are things that happened a long time ago before we were people. Right? This, is, this is early days among animals, for example, or plants, or, or whatever. Bilateral symmetry is pretty common among pretty much everything that's alive. Right? Pretty much everything. Cut it down the middle and say this half is the same as this half. Uh, why? I don't know. I don't know what advantage that confers. I guess we can make something up. How about among vertebrates having two eyes? Well, two eyes is pretty good, right? Because what's two, what two eyes allows you to do depth? Because you can parse the difference between how much uh, information in the left eye and the right eye and figure out how far away something is. Wouldn't it be cool to have a third eye in the back of your head so you can see stuff coming? Get a third That'd be neat, I guess. But eyes are expensive. They're hard to build. Right? They're expensive and they get hurt. Eyes get hurt. Now, there are cases like cave-dwelling fish that have no eyes. Eyes get hurt. When they give no advantage, they cause just disadvantage. You may as well have eyes anymore. Jordan? Uh, by normalizing selection, do you mean like just the asymmetry or symmetry gets selected for? Yeah. By extreme, you mean like the universe or not? Well, I mean, I'm thinking here about symmetry and body shape. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, we can think about behavior like the way that birds fly. Every bird flies the same way. Yes, I know some soar and some do more flapping. But they all fly roughly the same way. They flap their wings. There probably is another way to fly. Well, sure there is. Um, insects fly in the way. Right? Their wings are entirely different appendages. 
That would be a pretty long step for evolution to make, by the way. First of all, but secondly, I mean, it works pretty well. So we can take a look at something like, or I mean, the number of digits on our hands. It would be great to have an extra one. Wouldn't it be good to have an extra finger? Why not? Sure, it would help. It would be better than video games. Right? But the suite of genes is like a bunch of genes that control the number of digits we have on our hands and our, on our feet also control the shape of our genitals. Um, so, yeah, seven fingers would be great, but you wouldn't be able to pass it on because your junk would be hooked up incorrectly. <laughs> the reason I know that, by the way, is I, I haven't done this in a long time, but I used to do a podcast for kids, a science podcast, and kids all over the world, this was really weird. They'd send me questions, they'd record them. Why do we have five fingers? It's like, so I need to look it up. Turns out, explaining that to kids by the way is a lot of fun. So it turns out that your pee pee and your wee wee, um, that's not what I said. Another kid, a kid from Pakistan asked me what the shape of the universe was. I was like, I don't know. He's a psychologist for Christ's sake. I don't look it up. I called the guy and I knew. Get for Pakistan, he's like, he's not to call me. <laughs> I haven't done that in ages. She doesn't like that show. So this is one, it's hard to see this one, because what this is is saying, this is what makes us all roughly the same. We don't see a lot of that. We can think, this is the hardest one to think of. This is disruptive selection. This is when the extremes are selected for This is where two sexes come from. Probably. We don't know. Again, this isn't in humans. This is in sexually reproducing species. This is a long time ago. Now, I already talked about the advantage of sex, right? Which is that, besides, you know, good times, the advantage of it is that it allows for more genetic variability. Right? Very good. So, we can see how mixing genes would make a lot of sense. And in fact, you probably know, or you might know this, that for example, there are bacteria that now and then meet up and just exchange some genes. They don't actually make any new bacteria at that point, but they can give themselves a new genome. They just mix and match. Okay. Well, take it a step further, why don't we turn our reproduction into that? half from you, half from me, mash them up, and we end up with something a little bit different. So we can see how that would happen. Now, there's a couple of approaches you can take here. Well, you're probably going to be releasing cells that have that are haploid cells, right? You're releasing haploid cells that have half your genome, and they meet up with another haploid cell, and they uh, fuse together, and you end up with a diploid cell, etc. Right. Well, we can look at gamete size. And you can see how probably one could just do a little bit of thought experiment here, could imagine that it started out as an intermediate size. So we get a gamete about that big, let's say. Now that gamete, of course, the sex cell, what's surrounding the genetic material in there is going to give some nutrients. Right? It's also going to allow the sex cell to live a, long, a, a little longer. Uh, than something smaller, because something smaller uh, is not going to have as many nutrients, it's going to have as, uh, uh, to, to, to continue on. You could then think of, well, here's a better approach. How about a really big one? So there's a little bit of genetic material in here, so a couple chromosomes in there. That one's good, because it's, it's huge. Right? It's going to be extensive to make that. Right? Because you're making something that's going to be able to hold the genetic material, but also a whole bunch of nutrients. Think about a chicken egg. That's a single cell. You know, by the way, think of that. It's a single cell. Mm -hmm. You must be gay. This big is a cell. <laughs> okay. Now, maybe you know that's one approach is make really big ones. They're going to be slow. They're not going to move hardly at all. 
What about going the other way? Just something that has the genetic material. Nothing else. You know what you can do with those? You can make a zillion of them. You can make a whole bunch of those things. Because you don't care if they live or die. Because you're making a couple hundred million of them. Here you care. So you make one really good one and you make a huge egg sperm. So the middle isn't good for anybody. It doesn't have as enough. You can make a few of them, but not as many as a zillion sperm. It's got some nutrients, but not nearly as many as an egg. So this is probably, we don't really know this, but probably where sexual reproduction came from, and it originally came from gamete size. The interesting, the interesting thing is that that sort of slow and steady wins the race for female, and live fast, die young, and leave a good-looking corpse for male actually fits in with behavior in a lot of species as well. Right? Humans, in humans, for example, females live longer than males. Males do more dangerous things than females. And this is, this is true cross-culturally. This isn't just us. Even among sperm, among human sperm, you take a look at sperm that carry an X chromosome and sperm that carry a Y chromosome. The Y chromosome sperm are going to give you little boys, the X chromosome sperm is going to give you little girls because females are XX, so all the eggs have just an X in them. You know what? The Y chromosome sperm swim faster, but they don't live as long. The X chromosome swim, uh, sperm swim a little slower, but they live longer. Cool. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. And it turns out, in fact, that um, there's males make a little bit more Y chromosome sperm than they make X chromosomes. But in the end, we end up with it. And in fact, few, there's a sex ratio among humans, among uh, <laughs> births, is a little bit skewed towards boys. There's a, there are a few more boys born than girls, but by the time you reach puberty, more boys die in childhood than girls. And that, again, is cross-cultural. And it makes a lot of Again, it just all fits with the whole gamete size thing. It's like, boys are... Males are riskier. Okay? Oh, yeah. Questions about that? Yeah, the question I just do this. Do more of those? Okay. <coughs> so those are the kind of, 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 of questions of the kind of selection on it. Darwin was troubled by the preponderance of behavior that seemed to be of no benefit to the actor. This really bugged him. And you can see why, because he's come up with this great theory, he's, 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 he's looked at it, he said this is working pretty well. It sells out on the first day the Origin of Species is released, it sells out. It becomes a book that people read, just people are discussing. You know, and it's not like this is a book, it's a really well-written book, but it's a science book. This isn't a this isn't the Discovery Channel. You know, he's, he's doing... This would be like a new textbook came out and everyone rushed out and bought it and sold it in the first day. <laughs> right? You'd see people waiting for the bus, reading, oh, look, that new learning book is out. It doesn't happen. So it's pretty popular and pretty uh, influential, obviously. But he was troubled by the proponents of behavior that seemed to do nothing good for the act. Here's some examples. There are insect casts that are sterile. Now, I talked the other day, but they're not actually sterile. They just don't reproduce. We know they can, Bee stings are great, too, because that's given up your life. That's given up your life. You'll be good at the team. And evolution is something that works on the individual level. And in fact, if you read Dawkins and selfish gene, we know pretty much that, in fact, evolution works on the gene level. Alarm calling. What should I think about this? If I'm guarding, I'm a brown squirrel. I'll be a brown squirrel. 
and you're part of my grand squirrel, I don't know what they're living, troops? Herds? And herds would be seen like, what is troop? I don't know what it is. You know what chimps is? It's a committee. Did you know that it's a committee of chimps? Which is great, because when you're on committees, it's like people would rather be with chimps. Usually. Murder of crows is probably the coolest thing. Just a grand squirrel. I could look it up, but I don't feel like it. Anyway, ground squirrels are cool because one of the things that they do is that they're all crew of ground squirrels. We'll look at. I think it's colony. It probably is colony. It's probably colony. That sounds right. Let's go with colony. I like crew, but let's go with colony. It's probably closer to the truth. There are guards. picture that was all over the internet about five or eight years ago of a squirrel standing up and you can see its uh, testicles hanging there. <laughs> and then people turned into like a pig, you know, a poster of some sort. And, you know, squirrel is nuts, things like that. <laughs> well, actually, that was a brown squirrel doing a morning call. Predators come. Here's the downside of being the, the, the guard, the, the guy who does the warning. Hey, predator, I'm right over here! Because when you yell, you tell an alarm call and everybody else to hide. You're taking quite a chance, aren't you? What about reproductive restraint? What happens here is a lot of times, birds, for example, in this case, for the most part, <coughs> could have more young than they don't. Is, um, it's actually was quite controversial for a while. Birds can produce more eggs than they actually do. Right. So which size brood should the organism have to maximize the reproductive success? And we can think then that brood is the best in number of young, and what's going to be correlated with number of eggs. So we would think it would be a straight line like that. Then Wynne Edwards believed that selection also acted on the species level to stop massive overpopulation. Yeah, sure. So, like, the birds are like, well, we can't overdo this. We have to have one size like Cronius China. We don't want to overpopulate because then everybody dies. We can't have everybody die. Everybody just have fewer eggs. Lay fewer eggs and everybody will be happy. Now, do you think the birds were consciously making this decision? Sure, but nonetheless. means exhaustion and possibly death. Because birds do a lot of upkeep, don't they? They do a lot of parental care. Most birds do parental care. No, most of them do. They feed their own young. Right? They bring them, you think about pigeons, for example, uh, make, well, we, well we, we have this nice name for it, we call it crop milk. So what they do is they um, have a uh, it looks kind of milky, and it had regurgitated into their the mouths of the young. Actually, it's basically they just they're throwing out the young milk, but you know it's, it's good for it's food. They, they bring them, they bring little worms for the young. That's a lot of work. You got to feed a lot of kids. You could die because you're always out hunting for for food. 
Um, when I say hunting, I mean just, you know, looking for food, folks supporting it. Um, when you're always doing that, it also leaves you young unattended. So if you take a look at this graph here, and this is, this, oh, instead of just thinking like Wynne Edwards did, Lack said, why don't we collect some data? And he took a look at number of, this is clutch size, and then we take a look at survival rate, survival numbers. So you can see that the optimal size, because we're really taking the, this and we're subtracting this, okay? But we just get end up with this curve. It's just simple math. The optimal clutch size, and these are in, oh, bloody hell, what were they? Can't remember what this species is. It doesn't really matter. Um, the optimal clutch size is what? About two, three, a little more than four. I'm oh, sorry, a little more than five. It was four, six. It's a little more than five. You're going to get the best expected value of an egg if you have a little four and a half or whatever it is, five and a half eggs in that species. So you see what happens when you have lots? They die. Because this is probability. Now, you have one that survives, but you got one. Or none, rather. One that survives, but you got Big deal. The rest is somewhere in the middle. An intermediate clutch size is actually the best. And these are... Ah, let me go straight test, of course. Okay, so that's from WAC 1954. Right in the middle is the best. That's cool. That makes sense. So they aren't... It's restraint, but it's restraint not for the group. It's restraint for the individual. Screw the group. If I had my way, all the group would die, and I'd be the only one of the few left. Because that means that my genes pass on more. Wow. Birds are selfish. Nature is not a socialist paradise. It's right in tooth and claw. And this should depend on the environment, shouldn't it? Right? It should be that if you have a really good year, if there's a lot of food around and stuff, yeah, have more kids. Right? If it's a bad year, maybe have none, even if you have two. Or have one, two. But if it's a great year, there's all kinds of food around, why not have a zillion? If you can feed them all, right? If you can feed them all, why not? Makes sense. You can see here the likelihood of them surviving the more you have in a, in a good year, 1959 versus a bad year, 1960. The optimal clutch size will change depending upon the year. And these are boat-tail rattles. <coughs> well, suddenly this is all making a great deal of sense. The birds are not doing what's best for the collective. It may be best for the collective, that's fine. But the simpler explanation is they're doing what's best for the individual. So whenever you hear anybody say, for the good of the species, about evolution, they don't understand how evolution works. They're talking about survival of a species. I'm not. So don't, they don't mix that up with me not thinking that the world's important, that we should try to help our species survive and others too, and all that stuff. I'm saying that that's not how evolution works. Questions so far? Good. Now, one of the things that Bill Hamilton figured out so Lack's response to this was all data-driven, which is a great way. Hamilton's response was theoretical. Hamilton was quite a guy. Uh, I met him when I was at Oxford. I was walking down the street, 
and I was with um, a zoologist. And I'd given a talk at Oxford and in the zoology department, which was pretty cool because a lot of like kind of well-known people. So I'm walking along and I meet him and I don't recognize him. And I, I knew he, he was somebody because I had a and I, I get introduced to him, and I, he just introduces Bill. He said, Bill, this is Dave. He said, oh, this is Even the look on the chickadees, aren't you? So yeah, that's me. It's something to do with pigeons. He has memory. That's, that's my stuff. Yeah, I'll be talking about both those things when I'm here. Excellent, excellent. Well, I'll try to make it a very good, very good, very good to meet you. It's all warm and nice and pleasant. She takes my hand and walks off. Into, and of course, it's kind of rainy. It's January now, so it's kind of rainy and foggy. It's all very English. <laughs> And the guy who was with me, Alex Salmi, who was a, who's read as a pretty well-known um, zoologist, uh, says, I said, uh, he said, well, that was Bill Hamilton. Oh, shit. Yes, of course it was. He said, you know, you have more publications than he does. I said, yeah, really? Huh. You know, none of mine totally changed biology, though. <laughs> right? Um, so he was a really neat guy. Died about 10 years ago, right? Um, what Hamilton said was, let's look at behavior from the gene's point of view. Let's not worry even about the individual. Well, I look at the individual because you can't really look at the gene. In the early 60s, you couldn't. You probably could do that now. But it doesn't really matter anyway because you can look at the individual. Black, uh, Hamilton said, screw that. Let's go right to the, to the uh, gene's point of view. He said, your inclusive fitness equals your direct fitness plus your behavior's effect on the fitness of others that share your genes. Which is something we talked about today. We talked about inclusive fitness. Basically, it works like this. Um, where are we? So R is relatedness, C is the cost, and B is the benefit. And a behavior will happen if the cost is less than the relatedness times the benefit. Or relatedness has to be greater than cost divided by benefit. less than relatedness times the benefit. So what this basically is saying is, I will do something if the cost to me, to my fitness, is less than my relatedness to you times the benefit to my genes. So by looking at this, you can say, I'm going to do more costly things for my own kids than I would do for my brother's kids. In fact, I would do things that are twice as costly to my kid, for my kids than I would for my brother's kids. Because I'm related to my brother's kids by 0.25 and to my kids by 0.5. Right? So would you give your life up for a brother? And the response is no, but for two of them. For a brother and a sister. Brother and four first cousins. <laughs> half-brother, a nephew, an uncle and an aunt. This was a question we actually had uh, when I took a course on this stuff in grad school. And we had a question on our, on our final exam, which was, your house is on fire. Inside is your spouse. Two children of different ages. Your unrelated friend and dog. Who do you who do you rescue in what order and why? So, who, well, it's going to be the kids first, right? Because you can get another spouse. 
and you're related more to the kids than you are to your spouse. You're not related to your spouse. You probably are a little bit more than random chance. We talked about that the other day, but not a whole lot. So who do you, rec- who do you rescue first with the kids? The younger or the older? Yeah. Is the oldest closer to sexual reproduction? Then the younger, because you can have one to replace the other kids. Then, you rec- then, then who do you rescue next? Well, let's say I said who's the older? Well, your spouse, because you're probably a little bit related to your spouse and probably your unrelated friend not as much. So then, and then finally, the dog. Dog's not even human. But it was much longer. It had all kinds of lists of different paws in it. There's a half-brother, there's, there's an uncle of a friend of yours. There's all kinds of weird stuff written in it, you know. It is a question. I, was, I think Hamilton was asked this question. Um, would you give your life up for a brother? They said no, but two. Didn't Darwin put together a pros and cons list of getting married, and somewhere in there he made some kind of referral to the companionship of a spouse is somewhat better than that of a dog. Yes. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he, um, one of the cons was not, about, not as much money to spend on books. <laughs> um, one of the pros was children. And, and one of the pros was, yeah, it was better companionship than a dog. <laughs> but it did end with, and I mean, it did end with because she's the most beautiful creature in the world. So that's pretty cool. He was just being honest, you know. She was his first cousin. Which actually, when you look at that idea of a mate, is the optimal level. Um, while we actually have that being illegal, I believe, in Canada, which is to stop, you know, uh, recessive genes, it's the it's the one that is the most likely to have genes that you share, but the chance of there being Recessive uh, genes that cause um, abnormalities is, is low enough that the, the benefit outweighs the cost. People used to always make them with their cousins back then. It's just, I wouldn't do it. Kind of weird, huh? Yeah, two uncles and a mother. Now, you would rescue, who would you rescue first if you get both uncles at the same time or your mom? Your mom. Because you know you share half your genes with your mom. This is probabilistic for the uncles. Dave, yeah? would you save your mother or your grandmother first? Well, your mother's more related to you than your grandmother. Right. Right? But she's old. <laughs> and she's old. And she's old. And if you have two parents, is your mother still childbearing years of age? Mm-hmm. Yeah? It's about survival, but it's also, yeah, it's about survival, and it's about, but it isn't only just survival, right? Like, I mean, I'm more likely to in my kids' money than my nieces and nephews' money. And in fact, there's all kinds of really good data on this. If you get people to, in these situations, you just get them little stories, they will give out roughly twice as much money to their own kid as they do to a niece or nephew. And then they go to cousin, and it's like eight times. It's, and nobody's thinking like this. It's not like any of us are mandated. Even Bill Hamilton made these calculations on this. The people do that. Uh, we talked about the other day about the bees, right? And how, yeah, do the, do the females feed the, the young males? Yeah, they do. But uh, for every piece of food they give the young male, they get three of the young female because they share 0.75 with their sisters and 0.25 with their brothers because of the weirdness of bee genetics. So it's not just about survival, but anything that costs you something versus what the benefit is. And the benefit is always weighed by your relatedness to whomever you're giving the behavior to. Yeah, please. What if you're amazing? Even then, this really uh, cold data that suggests that if you take a look at it, um, I think the most common kind of adoption is an Eastern or, yeah, these men, because like the parents got somehow, and one of the other parents steps up, one of the brothers and sisters steps up, they don't think they're virgins. <coughs> so that's the most common kind of adoption, even in the you know, right? which makes a lot of sense when you think about it in light of this stuff. But it's also the case that when we look at this, um, if we look at abuse of children, and we have these experiments in nature where people have adopted kids and they have biological kids, they're more abusive than uh, adult kids. 
this gap. I'm not saying that you were adopted, you were abused, you were likely to be abused. What I'm saying is we know that this is the case. That it's the most likely, it's much more likely in that case to, to, to uh, adopt kids versus biological kids. Good question. How the hell does this work? Because <laughs> before Hamilton figured this out in the late 60s, no one had thought about this before, really. Um, R.A. Fisher came up with a kin selection. It's called kin selection. Came up with a kin selection model uh, for plants, but it, you know, he also invented analysis of variance, by the way. But Hamilton made it general to everything. So for this to work, there must be some sort of proximate mechanism. How do I write? Because we know it works. There's data on this in all kinds of species. I just talked about bees, I talked about people. It's pretty wide ranging. Well, it's pretty easy for mother and father and child. In fact, it's trivial, isn't it? That's my kid. That was easy. I must share genes with my kid. I must share genes with my kid. Though, here's a, it's, it's interesting um, with the mother and father. Mothers know their kids are theirs. Right? Let's talk about humans for a second here. Mothers know they are their children. You know why? Because they came out of her. It's then pretty clear she shares genes with you. Fathers are never completely sure. Right? They can't. They can't. And I'm not saying guys are always walking around going, I'm not sure that's my kid. Most guys aren't saying that. But it's interesting that when you take a look, this is again cross-cultural, when you take a look at parents of the mother versus parents of the father when they meet the grandchild for the first time. The parents of the father, when they say who it looks like, because you know, really honestly, when you look at a baby, the first thing you say is, oh, oh, wonderful, it looks like, or it's got your eyes, that kind of thing. But it's very, people do it all the time. The parents of the father, when they come in to see their grandchild, half the time say it looks like the mother and half the time say it looks like the father. They're probably actually being honest. The parents of the mother, 80% of the time say it looks like the father. <laughs> see what they're doing there, they don't know they're doing this, and they're not even probably trying to do this, is to convince the father to care for their genes. They know they are their genes, because they came in and their daughter, the kid did. Now, again, that's pretty freaking cool. And people are aware they're doing it, and they're not. I mean, I'm sure there are people going there. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there are cases like that, but for the most part, you know. Yeah, please. So, what about, like, you know, there are multiple species like that as well? Mm hmm. Where they have multiple families to share possibly? The. I've seen that done. Uh, that is pretty rare, that kind of thing. Um, what this will do, however, is you'll also get a lot of uh, you'll, you'll get a lot of conflict among the males. Right? Um, it won't. I'd like to see the data on that to actually ensure support. Or not. I'm not. I honestly don't know. Um, I know the situations like that when people aren't sure, you end up with fights, and males solve problems by killing each other. You know, that's, that's how males, that's pretty common. That's what males do. The most common, you know, who's, who's usually killed in a, the most common kind of crime, for, for in the biblical crimes we have data, because it's this. Uh, the most common uh, thing is, is it, it's males killing other males, and it usually, at some level, involves something to do with reproduction. Um, now, that might just be someone at a bar and they're fighting over a woman, which is stupid, but men are idiots. But isn't there also like some species of ape where the females will be really promiscuous and mate with all the different yes. males in the group? Yeah, the males. We'll, yeah, I doubt they ever know who the father is. But isn't that because the males will kill an offspring if they recognize they haven't mated with that? One, of course, and that's another strategy. Is just if I am with every male, no one knows that it might be their kid. Yeah. And they'll all pay child support. Yeah. 
Well, or they'll not kill the kid. They may not support, but they will kill. Like when a lion, when a pride of lions is one male and a bunch of females. When a new male comes along and kills the male, you know what the first thing he does is he kills all the cubs. That allows, first of all, they're not his, so what does he care? Secondly, if the, if the mothers aren't nursing, they can get pregnant again. So he kills the cubs, waits a week, and has sex with all the females. Nature's ugly. Nature's not pretty. You don't want to live in nature. It's scary. Be happy we have civilization. Okay, Robert Trevor's a smart guy from Harvard. Come up with what we call the green beard hypothesis. Now, he doesn't really think that there's green beards. And he's just using this as a, as a thought experiment. But he said, what if, how can it, see, a gene's going to have to detect that that gene is in another individual. So how can I detect that uh, my cousin Dennis is my cousin? Well, the notion there is, it wouldn't even be detecting my cousin, it would be detecting my genes in another individual. How would this work? Let's hypothetically say there is a gene that makes people grow green beards in their brain. And that gene also codes for a, a, a mechanism for recognition. That's one way this could work. This is very hard, by the way, for a single gene to do. That said, we saw the example with the crickets, right? Where you get the, the crossing of the two. And the single gene seems to code both the production of song in the males and the reception of song by the females. So I guess it's possible. So that's one way this could work, is the idea of the green beard hypothesis. Does that make sense? I'm not saying it should make sense like you think it's true. I'm saying you understand the idea. All right? Well, that's packing for today. And
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.